I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. We are listening in the dark after a catastrophe yet to be contained. More than 1,000 Israeli civilians killed in a terrorist invasion from Gaza two weeks ago. Thousands more Palestinians dead in a first round of punishment from Israel. Only the beginning, says Prime Minister Netanyahu, while President Biden, in support, warns him against all-consuming rage. In all-consuming anxiety, more than a million Palestinians under Israeli orders have fled their homes in Gaza without a clue where safety will be found. What we went to find in conversation was the sound of deep experience in the war zone of the Middle East. And also, in a time of dread, some measure of confidence in restraint. First up is David Shulman, Iowa-born, 50 years now living in Israel. He's a poet and professor of cultural anthropology at the Hebrew University and a founding activist in the Arab-Jewish partnership in the occupied Palestinian territories. I asked him for the feel of things in this mid-October of 2023. There are moments when it feels like the end of the world. These last few days, we've seen things that we've never seen before. The attack on October 7th, the Hamas attack, was um, levels of inhuman brutality such as we have never seen, so severe as to make you feel that these Hamas fighters are really not worthy of the name human being. The results also are horrific. We have, as of now, about 1,500 killed, murdered. Israelis. Israelis, yes. The vast majority of them civilians who were cut down in their homes or in their gardens or while hiding behind some bushes or whatever. Entire families wiped out. I think it's fair to say that there's nobody in the state of Israel who does not know at least one person who was killed in that way on Saturday. There are 10 million people here in Israel, but it's like a big village and people know one another. And um, actually, in the course of the last few days, practically every two or three hours, we get a message from somebody about another son or grandson or daughter-in-law who was murdered. So it's a terrible time here. The country is largely depressed. There's the imminence of a land invasion of the Gaza Strip by the Israeli army. If that happens, and it's almost certain to happen, it's going to involve a lot more casualties, both Israeli casualties and, of course, Palestinians. Uh, so, yeah, it feels terrible and uh, very threatening and dangerous. And along with the things that I've mentioned, the kind of feelings of despair and the horror, there's a rage. Uh, part of it directed, of course, at these Hamas murderers, but part of it also directed at the inept and uh, incompetent government that we have. Yeah, we read that. For a man of your depth of experience, David, I want to know what you think this crisis comes out of, unfolding from where, from what history, and why, why now, why so unbelievably brutal? Well, it has a long history, of course. Um, If we uh, begin uh, retrospectively with the more recent history, so we have to bear in mind that uh, life in the Gaza Strip has been horrible for several decades. 
Certainly, since the 2005 retreat from Gaza that the Israelis performed, there's over 50% unemployment. Basic necessities are often not available. I mean, this is a population of refugees, the children or grandchildren of refugees from the 1948 war. There's a lot of obvious rage and pain, no question about that. Speak of it from your own observation, David. I mean, you have been engaged with these villages for years. What do you see? And what do you say? So it's a little different to speak about the Gaza Strip and to speak about the West Bank. I'm active on the West Bank. I've been active there in the organization called Ta'ayush. That's the Arab-Jewish partnership that you mentioned. I've been active for the last 20-some years, and I've been hundreds and hundreds of times on the West Bank in these Palestinian villages. I know what life is like under the occupation. Do you want to distinguish between the West Bank and Gaza? That's exactly what I want to do because I have no direct experience of Gaza. I was there only once. It was about 50 years ago. Those are very different times. I was before Mm. there were any Israeli settlements anywhere. And um, it's a different country. What I know from firsthand experience, uh, the Palestinian villages in the South Hebron Hills and in the Jordan Valley, and to some extent in the central West Bank mountains. And I can tell you what life is like for the population there. The situation has deteriorated tremendously over the last few years, and especially over the last nine months since the formation of this very extreme right-wing government in Israel. Basically, these Palestinian people, they're living in a reign of terror. Mm. They're vulnerable to attack by Israeli settlers, who often tend to be extremely violent, at least the ones that I tend to meet out on the hills. It's not true of the entire settler population. Most of the Israeli settlers are normal people, but the people who are living in uh, what are called outposts, ma'achazim, illegal outposts, that means they're illegal even under Israeli law, uh, as opposed to the veteran settlements, which were founded by a decision of the government. In these outposts, we tend to find young people, they're often kind of uh, confused, lost teenagers or a little older than that, and um, they've been brainwashed. They're indoctrinated with a messianic and apocalyptic ideology, and they tend to be extremely violent. We call them the uh, the youth of the hills. That's what they're called in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. In the last few months, they've taken to attacking the Palestinian villages. The idea behind this, aside from the sheer wish to create pain and hurt, the uh, idea is that they want to drive these people out to clean the West Bank of Palestinians, a kind of ethnic cleansing. And it also happens to be the case that as of now, within the last few months, we see that the army and the police stand with the settlers. Sometimes they join them in the attacks. There was a time years ago where if we were attacked, we could call in the army or the police and they might actually do something to uh, calm the situation. That avenue is no longer open to us. The soldiers and the police are with the settlers 100%. Hmm. The same applies to the courts, the military courts. They were always terrible. If you're a Palestinian and you have the misfortune of being brought before one of the Israeli military courts, often on completely trumped up charges, by the way. Let's say you're a Palestinian shepherd out in the fields and you're attacked by an Israeli settler you might very well be arrested and accused of attacking the settler. 
you'll come before a military court, their uh, conviction rate is 99 point something like seven or eight percent. In other words, there's no justice, zero justice to be sought in the military courts. What avenues do we have? There's the Supreme Court, which is under attack by the Israeli government now. In theory, uh, we can apply to the Supreme Court for some kind of sucker, but certainly not in the midst of an attack. Uh, in short, if you're a Palestinian living in one of those villages, your house, your lands, your grazing grounds, and your life itself is really vulnerable to attack. David Schulman, if I could ask, what was the process by which the occupation became normalized, in fact, but then also introduced this ongoing, steady misery and violence for the Palestinians right. under occupation. So it was um, taken in the course of the Six-Day War. That's a category in its own right. 1967. That's right. That is of a military occupation. That is not uh, in itself illegal. Israel was attacked. 1967 was a war of survival. It ended up with Israel in possession or an occupation of the entire Palestinian land, all of the land west of the Jordan River. What changed beginning in the mid-70s is the decision by, first of all, initially it was uh, private initiatives of these first settlers. Then it became government policy of putting Israeli settlements on what are called state lands in the heart of the Palestinian civilian population, which amounts to about two and a half million people today. Mm. Those settlements, they began, there were at first only a handful of them. They were founded by mostly by ideological settlers who had a kind of messianic ideology, religious ideology. And their feeling is that the land of Israel belongs to the Jews, was given to them by God. God is a kind of real estate dealer, and uh, he handed it all over to the Jews and that they could colonize it and take it over. Not all of the settlers, by any means, saw this as an opportunity to drive out the Palestinian population. But that horrible goal has become more and more common to the point where it really today is um, adopted by large parts of the government, government ministers, and possibly by Netanyahu himself. So the settlements mushroomed. Today, there are around 200 of them, if you count the outpost. They're illegal. All of them are illegal under international law. And these uh, outposts are illegal even under Israeli law. But the whole of the Israeli state apparatus is there to back up the settlers and protect them. It seems that is the defining stance of the Netanyahu government. How close is it to a universal view in Israel that settlements are the issue? Yeah, it's not a universal view. Actually, there are different ways to talk about this. Um, the Israeli public... There's a, it's got a, a very severe division. You could say that uh, there's a division between the right and the left. You could also say there's internal dissension and severe conflict between the religious Zionists and their present configuration and between the rest of the Israeli public. I don't know how many of them there are, maybe 25% of the population, something like that. There's a hardcore of a fanatical Netanyahu supporters. But I think, broadly speaking, without trying to give you like a really fine-tuned uh, statistic, I would say that roughly half of the Israeli public are moderate, uh, mainstream people with a tendency perhaps towards the left. And these are people who would perhaps 
welcome any kind of reasonable peace agreement with the Palestinians and the idea of partition is acceptable to them. The other half are people who are dead set against giving back any of the land. And many of those people are prepared to entertain the idea of driving the Palestinians off the land. I keep thinking of the choices here that are directed at the past and at the future. The past, including retaliation for the horrendous Hamas attack, but the future in terms of a way out, a way out of further war, a way maybe to a even a wider settlement. Where is it we're suspended here in the second full week of this crisis? So I'm going to offer you a counterfactual scenario, and that might shed a little light on your question. Okay. We have to remember that what the Hamas people did on October 7th is some barbaric crime, a huge barbaric crime. And we mustn't blame the Israelis for that. I mean, the Hamas have to take responsibility for that. And I think also Israel has the right to pursue the murderers who attacked us whatever that means. But the trouble is, at least from my view, and I'm just an ordinary citizen, I'm not a political scientist, and I'm not a prophet. But just from my point of view, if the Israelis were going to invade the Gaza Strip, in order to disarm the Hamas people, and perhaps to topple the Hamas government, in order to hand the Gaza Strip over to somebody like the Palestinian Authority, with the ultimate aim of resuming negotiations and creating a peace agreement, were that the case, it's not the case, but were that the case, then I think it would make a lot more sense of the invasion that is likely to begin at any moment now. As things stand, we have a government that is totally against any kind of peaceful settlement. Actually, I think that Netanyahu's policy has made no attempt to hide it for years has been to try to completely eradicate the Palestinian national movement mm. and to uh, produce a situation where there's a kind of Jewish supremacy in the entire country west of the Jordan River. He thinks he can do that. For a while, it looked like he was having some success in that. I think it's a foolish idea and has no chance of actually uh, coming to pass. At some point, to go back to your question, at some point, could be when all the other options have failed, I suppose that there may well be a movement to resume negotiations. And I have to say that I myself believe that a time will come, conditions are right, in which there will be some kind of settlement, some kind of peaceful solution. What form that will take, I don't know. It could be two states, it could be something more than one state and less than two states. It could be a single state in which there's equality for everybody. I don't know how it's going to happen, and it certainly will not happen under the present government, or for that matter, any strong or extremist right-wing government. There's another element I think that we should say something about. You see, when we look back just 10 days, there's what the Hamas terrorists did. But we have to ask ourselves, how was it possible for the Israeli system to fail in preventing this? There is a tremendous uh, intelligence failure. 
And beyond that, we have a kind of dysfunctional state. Over the last nine months, there's been a severe deterioration in all the major parameters, the institutional fabric, the social fabric of Israel. And Netanyahu and his people, the people around him, they've torn the country apart. The army, you know, the, the leaders of the army and the intelligence community, they warned Netanyahu that there was a security problem that was becoming severe and imminent. He chose to ignore those warnings, you know. The public service is now staffed with these yes-men and psychophants, not professional bureaucrats. The courts are under attack. The uh, economy is in trouble because uh, the money is leaving Israel because of the unstable situation. It's, uh, you know, I mean, the easiest way to see all of this is just to say a few words about the first hours of the attack on October 7th. Please. I mean, the attack began at 6.30 in the morning. It took nearly the entire day for the army to get combat units on the scene. For hours and hours, the civilians and the small kibbutzim and moshavim around the Gaza area on the Gaza periphery, they were for the most part left to their own devices. It's as if the state apparatus itself and the army had simply evaporated. And that was the feeling that these people were articulating throughout those terrible hours. There were skeleton combat crews, and there were heroic attempts to stave off the attack. A lot of people, soldiers, were killed in the course of those attacks. But the overwhelming uh, picture is one where the state was simply absent. It's as if we'd gone back to the time when Jews were vulnerable to pogroms by the Cossacks in Eastern Europe, you know. So if you think of it like that, you can see the nature of the... Um, how shall I call it, the unraveling of the Israeli institutional structure, including the army. That was one of the most striking reportorial pieces I've seen on this crisis, how Hamas learned the Israeli methods, military, intelligence, the whole thing, and how they overwhelmed the electronic monitors, how they, yeah. they were carrying cameras on their helmets in a very modern digital way of warfare. Mm -hmm. It's shocking. They read the Israeli defenses like a book and beat it for hours. Yeah. I'm just wondering in a more general way, what is Israel learning about itself reflectively after the fact? Well, the good news is that what we could call Israeli civil society has already begun to recover from the shock. And we can see this in the way civilian organizations are organizing in all kinds of ways. Um, they're taking people who are refugees from the Gaza periphery into their homes and hosting them possibly for weeks or months at a time. Uh, they're sending food and other necessities to these places. They're sending food and uh, supplies to the soldiers because the army called up over 300,000 soldiers. A lot of these units are lacking in all kinds of minimal necessities for combat, for survival. And this has now become a job that the uh, civil society has taken on, and it's taken on with a tremendous uh, devotion and imagination and uh, efficiency. It's remarkable in a way, uh, if you think about it, uh, here's a government that is prepared to spend, I think it's 15 billion shekels, which would be what almost $4 billion on subsidizing the ultra-Orthodox institutions of learning, the yeshivot, people who don't pay taxes for the most part and who don't serve in the army to begin with. Take that amount of money out of the budget, 
you're left with the civil society that has to make up the gap, you know, and that's what's happening now. It's something which uh, actually is rather shameful. I'm, I'm not sure I get the, the transaction you're talking about. Say, say that again and be as specific as you can about where the money is going. Okay. So, you know, there are ultra-Orthodox religious parties in the Israeli Knesset, and they hold a lot of power. In fact, they may hold the balance of power because the coalition has got only 64 members out of 120 in the Knesset. So they just have a small margin of a majority. They need the ultra-Orthodox parties. These ultra-Orthodox parties, in contrast with their historic role, which was a kind of moderation and peace orientation in politics, today they're all about taking whatever they can grab from the state budgets. And what that means is that they have huge subsidies to their own educational institutions in which there's very little of what we would regard as a kind of elementary instruction, let us say, things like mathematics, English, geography, history, and so on, hardly taught. These are religious schools. And the young men who study in these schools, and there are lots and lots of them, they tend to be married with huge families, and they have enormous subsidies, which comes from the state budgets. Uh, we're talking about billions of dollars. That's money which should have gone to all kinds of things, like the social services, like the health institutions, mm. like uh, the state of the roads, and like uh, the army, which is, uh, of course, uh, always in need of more money. So now we're in a situation where the ordinary people like us, people in the, in the neighborhoods and on the streets, they're taking up the slack and volunteering from their own pockets to uh, send food, supplies, and all the rest. It's really a kind of inconceivable thing if you think about it. No normal country would be able to survive like this. David Shulman, focus on the future that we could all live more happily with. Imagine, imagine what has to be done now. Make the future we could live with the test of what we ought to be doing now in Israel, but also I'm thinking in the United States at the presidential level, at the congressional level, at the human level. Yeah. First of all, it's really important to keep the hope for peace alive and to articulate it, uh, as the president has done. That needs to be said over and over again, that there's hope for peace, and that peace can only come out of a rapprochement between the Israeli state and its institutions and its people, and between the Palestinian people who share the land. The populations are now more or less at parity, about 8 million Jews and about 8 million Palestinians. And you cannot maintain a system like we have today, in which you have a kind of apartheid-like regime on the West Bank, a population completely devoid of any human rights at all, and a population inside the old Green Line, that is inside old Israel, which has all the natural rights and access to courts and can vote and all of those kinds. Of, you cannot maintain a system like that forever. We have to somehow convince the Israeli population that this is the case. And I think, you know, despite the fact that Israel has shifted to the right in market ways over the last years, I think that still, if an option for a real peace and serious negotiations were to arise with a credible Palestinian leader, and there are such people, I think that a majority of the Israeli population would go for it and support it. I don't know when that will happen. I used to think it would happen in my own lifetime, and I would live to see it. 
I'm not so sure about that anymore. Um, the Palestinians have their own problems and their own crimes to take account of and uh, be responsible for. And the government, Palestinian government, the Palestinian Authority, it's not in good shape. That's partly because Israel has eroded the Palestinian institutions uh, over years, uh, over the last 20 some years. Palestinians have to also get their act together. But I believe that if there were a credible Palestinian coalition that wanted to make peace and understood what that meant, I believe that the Israeli population would eventually go for it. It's really hard, you know. You have to keep in mind that in South Africa, it looked like the apartheid regime might last forever. People thought the Soviet Union would last forever. I think a day will come when the occupation which in a way is the heart of all of our problems, the, the occupation of the West Bank, the occupation will fall apart. Either, well, I don't know how it'll happen, but I think that it cannot survive. And when that happens, inevitably, the option of negotiation and a peaceful settlement will again arise. It could arise and might most easily arise in the context of a regional settlement, that is a wider settlement that would include all the major Arab states, particular Saudi Arabia, which is, I think, close to making an agreement. On the verge, yeah. Uh, and maybe other regional powers like Turkey. Immediately after the attack, David Shulman, you wrote in the New York Review about a sort of a break, almost a collapse in what you call the conceptual system of Israel over the last 30, maybe 40 years. Mm -hmm. The drift toward a settler-driven politics. You called it a dysfunctional state mired in internal conflict, hubris, and moral decline. Do you still feel that's true? Yeah, it's definitely true. I mean, we're in an emergency situation now where, you know, Israel has been very badly hit and it has it has its own reasons for going to war with the attempt to destroy the Hamas. That's apart from what you've just quoted. But I believe the basic situation is still very much that. We urgently need a new government. We need to get Netanyahu sent off to some remote place and uh, without power because the damage that he's done is absolutely enormous. The state is to no small extent dysfunctional, as we could see from what happened when the Hamas attacked. And the moral balance is not looking good. Describe what you see as the moral balance here. Difficult words. Yeah. I think that's the heart of the whole problem. We have a Jewish population, which is um, on the whole blessed with the relatively universal values and rights that we would want to see. They can vote, they have courts, they have a bureaucracy that functions more or less. You know, We have a Palestinian population on the West Bank Two and a half million people who have no rights whatsoever, and they're living in a kind of apartheid system uh, in which the settlers, with the backing of the government and the army and the police, are stealing their lands, and in many cases, also driving these Palestinians off of their lands. I want to say that over the last two weeks or so, and especially after the attacks, the violent settlers on the West Bank have seen an opportunity, and we are now seeing villages one after another in the central West Bank, where the Palestinian villagers are no longer able to sustain this kind of reign of terror. The settlers come into their villages, 
they're armed, they're masked, they beat them, sometimes they shoot them, sometimes they kill them. They may kill the animals, they may steal aside from the land, also whatever, whatever belongings they have. This has become so unbearable that over the last 10 days, even before that, actually, we've seen a series of these villages um, empty themselves out. There's a place called Ain Rashash, where I was myself involved for a long time, over years. And these are people I know, they're my friends. Uh, they were one of the last in the central West Bank to hang on. Just uh, two days ago, we got word that the villagers are leaving. They're packing up and leaving. They can no longer stand it. Mm. There's a village called Wadi Asik. I was there just a month ago. I slept there overnight. We have activists in these villages mm. trying to protect the Palestinians. The uh, adults said that they wanted to stay, but that they were tormented by the fact that their children are terrified and crying all the time. And that's probably the case in many of these villages. What we're seeing is the beginning of what you could call a second Nakba. The Nakba was the expulsion or flight of uh, huge numbers of Palestinians in 1948 during the war, the first war. We're seeing the beginnings of a second Nakba in which these settlers are the driving force. That's what I mean by moral collapse. If the government were prepared to stop it, they of course have the means to do that, but they don't want to stop it. We have government ministers and possibly the prime minister himself who support this policy. We have portions of the population who believe in Jewish supremacy as a worthy goal. Supremacy in the sense that only Jews will have rights. Who believe in ethnic cleansing inside the uh, occupied territories. That's the moral calamity that we have brought upon ourselves. Again, I want to say that's our part of the story. The Palestinians have their own story. You know, you could say that both sides routinely commit atrocities against each other. That's the case. As it happens, however, Israel has the power. And there's an immense disparity in power between Palestinians on the West Bank and the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli institutional apparatus. I want to say the uh, Israeli civil society is beginning to recover and is acting with a huge um, kind of esprit de corps and uh, solidarity. Everybody's uh, frightened and depressed, but they're doing what they can in order to make life viable for these people who somehow survived the massacres. A lot of these people have lost everything. You know, They've lost their parents, their children, their brothers, their sisters. Some of them are in hotels near the Dead Sea. In any case, there's been an outpouring of solidarity and loving kindness by Israelis to other Israelis. I wish I could say the same about Israelis to Palestinians in the territories, but I'm afraid I can't. Well, that may take longer. It will take longer, I'm afraid, yeah. Chris, I have to say, I believe it'll happen. I have not lost hope. I'm not exactly an optimist. I make a kind of distinction between optimism and hope. Optimism, I think, is a kind yes. of mentalistic projection and not very deep. But hope is, is a spiritual act. And uh, yeah, so, I mean, sometimes the worse things get, the more hope there is. I haven't lost hope by any means, and uh, I believe the day will come. I hope the day will come when my grandchildren will be able to live here in a state that has equality for everybody and in which Israelis and Palestinians see one another as brothers. We are brothers. If you could take one step 
You know, before Thanksgiving, before the end of the year, where, who would take it for us and where would it be going? Um, well, it would be who would take it for us. Um, there are voices from outside that count for a lot, especially from the United States, not only from there, also from Europe, from Asia, there are voices. Within Israel, if we had a political opposition to the government that was capable of articulating that hope and making people believe that there was some chance for it, that would be great. But unfortunately, we don't seem to have that. We have articulate people on the left, of course. They're like crying in the wilderness at the moment, especially now. You have to imagine, this is a, Israel is a country which is in torment. They've seen these gruesome scenes over and over again on the media, and people people are tormented. This is not a moment when they're likely to open their hearts for something in the direction of peace, but eventually that moment will come. I'm afraid that the conflict will spread, that you know, what began in Gaza will spread to the north, to Lebanon, and maybe beyond that. I mean, there's a lot of anxiety, actual real terror all of us are facing that now and all of us you know i mean we everybody is supposed to have a safe room in his or her house where you can hide from the missile attacks the hezbollah in lebanon they have 150,000 maybe by now 200,000 missiles you know i mean the damage that they can do is immense so we're living in that with that fear there's a lot of fear and there's a huge rage mostly directed of course and rightly so against hamas and also against the government for failing to do what it was supposed to do. Put it like this, you want an optimistic note. If there were elections today, according to the polls, everything is volatile in Israel, but according to the polls, the extremists would be out, the right wing would suffer a major defeat, and we would have a kind of mainstream government. Mainstream government might be capable of thinking in terms of the long run, you know, of the ultimate goal of making some kind of settlement, because everybody can see that the endless war is going to destroy us all. I have to say one other thing, uh, another hopeful sign is that over the months before this horror in Gaza, in the Gaza periphery, uh, there was a huge mass protest in Israel against the government and its policies, above all, against the anti-democratic legislation that it was trying to pass. And here we could say that, you know, literally, you know, hundreds of thousands, actually possibly millions of Israelis came out week after week into the streets in order to protest the attempt by the Netanyahu government to create a kind of authoritarian system close to a dictatorship. They kept this up every week for nine to 10 months. Those people, and especially the leaders of those protests, these are good people. They're the salt of the earth. They may eventually be the people we see in the Knesset. I hope that will be the case. See, I, again, I, I think it's important to emphasize the fact that the country is divided. There's a strong right wing, I don't know, 30% to 50% of the country. There's an equally strong mainstream with a kind of left-oriented, peace-oriented periphery. That means the country really is divided down the middle. I think in the end, it's those people who are out protesting in the streets who will determine our future. David Shulman, thank you so much for taking us there in mind and spirit. 
It's a wonderful opportunity for us and our listeners. Thank you. And I know you'll be part of the best things that happen. I'm doing the very little that I can do, and mostly in the territories. But thank you very much. Thank you, Chris. Among David Shulman's books, he wrote one 15 years ago titled Dark Hope, Working for Peace in Israel and Palestine. It's almost a chorus out there now telling Israel, don't blow Gaza away with explosive force or an invasion on the ground. Hussein Ibish was one of the first to strike that theme in the Atlantic. He wrote that the attack from Gaza on October 7th was a trap set by Hamas fanatics quite deliberately, a strategic and moral trap for Israel and maybe for the U.S. too. Hussein Ibish, in his father's footsteps, is an Arab-American analyst and public intellectual, American-educated with a pragmatic turn of mind. I asked him to give us a picture of that Gaza trap, but also to speak of his heart, too, and the emotional urgencies of the moment. For me, this has been the most triggering event, the most emotionally Mm. evocative event in the Middle East since my experiences during the Lebanese Civil War and the events surrounding it, which began in 1975 and went through 1990. And what those experiences prepared me for in this instance is to strongly identify with the ordinary people on both sides of this divide. Because Mm. my experiences in Lebanon at the hands of Lebanese militias, at the hands of the Israeli military, at the hands of occasionally the Syrian army and others, Palestinian groups, others, um, were that I do know how it feels. Mm. So I was really able strongly to identify with the people in southern Israel, in Sterot and these other towns near the Gaza border, because I know what it feels like to feel hunted. I know what it feels like to cower. I know what it feels Mm. like to live in a situation where there either are people right on the other side of the door with arms who would like to kill you, or you don't know if there are or not. And it's the same feeling, frankly. Who's the person in your vision at this moment? It's an Israeli mother or father surrounded by children the age of my own children, five and nine, and you know, sort of trying to keep them quiet, trying to keep them calm, and with arms around them, and sort of hoping against hope that nothing gives you away. This is what I imagine. And of course, I can't take it to the next level and imagine actually being gunned down, but I don't know what it feels like to be bombed from the air. I know what it feels like to worry that the building that's surrounding you is going to come down around you, that perhaps nearby buildings may come down, that if you're going to run across the street, a, a car may blow up in front of you, that you just don't know where the next missile is coming from, and all of that sort of thing. Now, I was never in a situation where I absolutely couldn't leave for decades on end, but I also do know what it feels like to not be able to get out. And and that's another situation that these two million Palestinians in Gaza really face. And um, right before we, we began this conversation, some 500 people have been killed in an explosion at a hospital in Gaza. I was just going to say, yeah. the New York Times news this moment as we speak in the north of Gaza, we're all cowering behind that door. Hussein Ibish, explain this trap, the trap for specifically the people who are heavily armed in a certain kind of power right now and in a rage. No, that's right. First of all, I think it's a truism or a strategic cliche that is true. 
that insurgent groups, guerrilla groups, terrorist groups, however they may be, when they engage in acts of spectacular overkill, when they really try to shock the targeted society, the dominant society, what they're primarily seeking to provoke is an emotional and irrational response on the mm. part of the targeted society. We experienced that very well in the United States after 9-11. I think Al-Qaeda was trying to get us to do something crazy. And the point of such groups is to try to get a stronger power to inflict more harm on itself than they could inflict upon it. There's only so much Hamas can do to Israel. There is an infinite amount of damage Israel can do to itself. There wasn't that much Al-Qaeda could do to the United States, but we managed to deliver a huge knockout blow to ourselves internationally by invading Iraq, which was a crazy emotional overreaction. In this case, I think Hamas has some pretty specific ideas about what they're trying to bait the Israelis into. And yeah. I think they're trying to lure them into a conflict on the ground in the population centers of Gaza, street by street, close quarter combat, house by house. And any battle like that greatly favors the guerrilla groups rather than the large regular armies, because most of the advantages the large regular armies have in terms of munitions and intelligence and precision guidance and all that break down when you're fighting house to house. Would there truly be a prolonged house to house fight between Israeli arms what the Gazans have? Okay, I think the answer is yes. I think it won't be sort of Stalingrad. You know, it won't be anything like that. But I think it could look a lot like Fallujah. It could look a lot like Mosul. I'll use American experiences just because, you know, people may know about those things. When the United States encountered Iraqi insurgents in Fallujah and Mosul, yes, it may be limited in the beginning in the sense that Israel could be able to overwhelm the armed groups in Gaza, including Hamas and many others that exist there, especially Palestinian Islamic Jihad and some other groups, smaller groups. But they have been preparing this, right? Israel was taken aback by the ingenuity and cleverness and sophistication of the terrorist attack weekend before last. And there is no way that Hamas and the other groups would have prepared for that attack so carefully and not also prepared to encounter the Israelis on the ground in the counteroffensive. So I think they've laid a lot of traps. I think they've thought it through. I think they've done a lot of training for it. I think there are a lot of Israeli reservists going into this with very limited experience in urban warfare. And uh, I'm not sure how well the Israelis will do in rooting out all of these Hamas fighters with their tunnel system, with their booby traps, with their networks, with their IEDs, with their rockets, with whatever they have. And they may have things we haven't even thought of. How to avoid the trap? Well, I think that there really is only one way of doing it at this point. Now, you could go back and critique the occupation, critique the siege of Gaza that's been going on since 2007 in particular, or 2005, depending on how you want to date it. But right now, I think Israel is faced with an immediate set of choices that have to do with how expansive and how limited, that is to say how realistic, they want to make their war aims, their military aims in this counterattack. If they want to stick to the original slogan of Delenda est Hamas, and Hamas has got to go, and we just can't allow Hamas to control any territory near Israel at all. 
then I think they are leaving themselves no choice but a prolonged occupation, uh, reoccupation of the streets of Gaza, which will turn into ultimately Hamas hopes, and I think is likely a kind of an abattoir for Israeli soldiers and conscripts. This is important. People who read you can see in outline a tentative alignment of those established powers, United States, Israel, and Saudi Arabia, not only the oil power, the money power, and the religious power, aligning themselves with some undefined Palestinian element, and also the Gulf Arabs too, in a kind of grand alliance. And it was precisely that, you suggest, that Hamas was determined to blow up. Yeah. I do think that this explains not necessarily the reality of the Hamas attack on Israel, but certainly its timing. I think what they were most alarmed about, about this potential agreement, which went in a matter of a few months from being a pipe dream to being something actually plausible. And uh, the administration was making tremendous progress, with, especially with Saudi Arabia, in crafting the contours of an agreement, how they were going to get the Israelis to engage in a significant Palestinian component of it remained to be seen. But what I think the United States was trying to do was unite its main military partner in the region, which is Israel, with the great Arab financial, cultural, and religious power, which is Saudi right. Arabia, and then create a network of countries in the Middle East that are pro-American, all with bilateral relations with each other and shared interests. So we would have Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Bahrain, to some extent Qatar, Qatar half in and half out, and then swinging around the other side of the Arabian Peninsula, Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and Israel. And combined with the United States, this really encircles the Arabian Peninsula and locks down U.S. control over the great maritime choke points in the region, the Suez Canal, uh, Bab el-Mandab Straits, and the one most important to Iran, which is the Straits of Hormuz. Now, to get that done, there would have to be a significant Palestinian component, and that means a lot of money going to the Fatah-dominated groups in the West Bank, the Palestinian Authority and the PLO, and also expanded powers for the PA, limitations on Israeli settlements, possibly an understanding about postponing or agreeing not to pursue annexation, all these benefits that are not going to be satisfactory to the Palestinian leaders in the West Bank. They're not going to be anything like satisfactory, but they're going to be way better than nothing. And in the end, the PA could be strengthened, enriched, and have an argument to say, well, our patient, careful diplomacy does eventually get things for us, whereas Hamas only brings you death and destruction. The danger and then the trap comes from letting Israel and or the United States do something so grotesque in Gaza now that they could not be credible partners in any kind of forward motion. Yes, I think the trap is, first of all, to blow up the potential of a Saudi-Israeli deal by making Israel radioactive again in the Arab world because of their overreaction in Gaza. And then from a strategic point of view, you want to trap the Israelis into a protracted struggle under conditions that favor the insurgency, and that is close-quarter urban combat. Mm. I keep wondering if part of the reason Joe Biden is going to Jerusalem in the next few days is to brief Netanyahu on the trap. Mm -hmm. You get me out of mine and I'll help you out of yours or something, but to reconsider restraint at this late date. Oh, I think so. I think you can see the administration 
speaking out of many sides of its mouth. So you've got Lloyd Austin, who was in Israel, the um, defense, secretary. defense secretary, who was emphasizing military cooperation. You've got Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, who's been hinting at the need for restraint, while he's also been doing a good deal of chest thumping as well. The president, I think, publicly is going to stick to his unconditional support for Israel line, because that's the phase we're in. The thing he said on 60 Minutes was, don't reoccupy Gaza. Don't get drawn into the trap. He sees the trap, and he, I think he's going to urge Israel not to commit itself on the ground in Gaza in a way that will play into the hands of Hamas. Hussein Nivish, what you're implying beyond this accord of the established powers that Hamas was bound to destroy was a sort of service to the other side, Iran, maybe even Russia and China in a, in a global realignment. Uh, take us through the Iran stake here. Yeah, I think I've explained uh, what Hamas's immediate um, motivations were regarding the uh, Saudi-Israeli-American potential agreement. For Iran, this is a bigger threat. And so uh, I think Iran clearly was looking to use the flare-up and the provocation against Israel to create a situation where Israel becomes so toxic in the Arab world that Saudi Arabia really can't go forward with that. For Iran, it really would unite their two biggest foes, Israel and Saudi Arabia, and, and would make the region much more difficult for them to manage. It would be, if it were done, the first major strategic setback that Iran has suffered at the structural level since the American invasion of Iraq in 2003 set off what amounts to a string of uninterrupted strategic victories for Tehran in the Middle East and in their surrounding areas. Um, so they were very, very concerned about that. Victories, site one or two. Well, okay, so for example, Iran has become the dominant power in Iraq, whereas yes. before the US invasion of Iraq, Iraq was the primary bulwark against Iranian influence spreading in the Arab world. Saddam Hussein's regime was very strongly Sunni Ba'athist regime that wanted nothing to do with Iran and fought a long war with Iran and suppressed pro-Iranian groups in Iraq. Now uh, Iran is the dominant actor okay. in Iraq. Iran also successfully intervened to save the regime of Bashar al-Assad in Syria, and he has turned Syria into another subserviently pro-Iranian Arab actor. In the process, Iran and Hezbollah turned Hezbollah, the Lebanese Shiite militia, into what is almost certainly the most potent non-state military force in human history. Mm. Iran has spread its influence into Yemen through the Houthis. It has uh, destabilized much of the region and challenged mm. uh, the United States in a very direct way. All of this provides the key background through which Iran has made progress towards becoming a nuclear power. None of this is really imaginable without the U.S. invasion of Iraq in, in 2003. And the extent to which that benefited Tehran and did damage to the United States, but especially benefited Tehran, is hard to exaggerate. Wow. As you speak, Hussein Ibish, I'm thinking of what Saudi money over 20, 30 years could do to rebuild Gaza or to rebuild yeah. Gazans in the Sinai, in Egypt somewhere, in a new land, what time and money could do. But how's to make that offer sort of real enough for scared Palestinians to give up the Hamas threat, so to speak, the Hamas terror? First of all, I don't think there's anyone in the Arab world 
right now who wants to bail Israel or Hamas out of the mess they've jointly created in Gaza. And I especially don't think they want to facilitate the removal of another 2 million Palestinians from Palestine into Egypt or the Sinai or anywhere else. I think that you could convince Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain and others and Europeans, Japan, etc., even the United States to pour money into Gaza if there were a different government, a credible Palestinian government in power there. The problem is that right now no such entity exists or seems imaginable. No such power has been allowed to develop too. Isn't that fair to say? Yes, it is fair to say. Hussein Ibish the bad situation is such an understatement, so many dangers, including Cy Hirsch says that Israel's plan, the Netanyahu plan, is basically to make Dresden out of Gaza with a, some sort of super weapon that would dig into the underground networks of the whole thing. Gaza, it's over. On your own schedule of horrors here, what's the danger to be avoided even in this second week of the Gaza-Israel crisis. So we already have at least 4,000 Palestinians killed in Gaza, most of them civilians, many of them children. And I think we're headed rather quickly to going over 10,000 and possibly much more than that. So under such circumstances, this war could end up looking like one of the worst acts of carnage in recent history. It, it'd be up there with, with most other uh, sort of major disasters. Again, you're talking about a population of 2 million people, so you're ending up with a very significant percentage of them ending up getting killed or displaced or somehow you know rendered homeless. And there's also the humanitarian angle here because these people right now have no food, they have no water, they have no medicine, they have no electricity, they have no... I mean, the basic infrastructure of daily living, they don't have. And Israel is not making any particular efforts that we can see to get it to them. And in fact, they've been blocking it. So under such circumstances, I think obviously the grave danger is death on a mass scale. And the most chilling part is that Israel's military, ever since the founding of the state and the precursor militias like the Haganah that preceded the IDF, have always sort of employed a doctrine of disproportionality as a means of deterring Arabs. And clearly, they're sticking with that. But you've got to wonder how much disproportionality is going to satisfy the bloodlust here. Or, if you want to look at it another way, how much is too much mm. for the Israeli public, military, etc.? Is there such a thing after so much brutality in southern Israel, which caps off a century of very brutal conflict between two peoples that have had precious little mercy for each other during the, the time uh, in which they've been at odds. So I'm really afraid that we're looking at a real mm. catastrophe. And if that happens, uh, of course, maintaining Arab-Israeli diplomacy is going to be very difficult, if not impossible. And many people are in favor of it in the past 20 years may conclude that it's undesirable in the Arab world anyway. And, you know, certainly getting to a modus vivendi between Israel and the Palestinians that's sustainable and that satisfies the minimum requirements of both people will be much, much more difficult because this could come to rival the catastrophe, the Nakba of 1948, potentially, in terms of uh, death and destruction and, uh, and chaos and horror. And endless aftermath as well. Right, endless aftermath. And with the Israelis on the other side feeling justified 
because of the carnage in southern Israel. Hussein Ibish, it's a grim, grim take on an awful situation. I want to say let us pray, but thank you for taking us through it. Mr. Leiden, it's an honor to be with you. Hussein Ibish is a senior resident scholar and a prolific writer at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. Open Source is proud to be a member of Hub and Spoke, a Boston-based collective of independent, creator-owned podcasts. Our shows cover everything from politics to art to history to technology, and we're united around the thought that independent voices are more important than ever. You can learn more at hubspokeaudio.org.